1: Attend to the people side. In this episode of the Iowa Idea Podcast, I sit down with Dan Clay. Dan is currently professor and dean of the University of Iowa College of Education. Prior to this, Dan served as dean of the University of Missouri College of Education since 2010. At Missouri, he was also on the board of directors for the Missouri Innovation Center, a business incubator accelerator. Dan and I explore his journey from growing up in a small rural community... His involvement in Future Farmers of America, to his interests in psychology, child development, and education, to leadership roles in higher ed, and as a business owner and brewer. Our conversation also dug into the crossroads that higher ed finds itself. I appreciated Dan's openness and perspectives on leadership and innovation and how to model the behaviors he wants to see in his organization, as well as the importance of attending to the people side of things when it comes to change management. I enjoyed one of Dan's favorite pieces of advice from a mentor. If you're not really sure what to do, just go fishing. It was an honor having Dean Clay join me on the show. Thanks to Dan for his time and insight. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Dan, welcome to the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to, to have you here. I always enjoy the opportunity to talk with you. For our guests, if you don't mind, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, thanks Matt, and uh, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. So
0: uh, I'm one of four kids, a product of the rural Midwest. Much of my childhood was spent in a very rural, a northern part of Minnesota, small farming community. And uh, although part of my childhood I spent um, in Iowa, in uh, Edgewood, Iowa, which is up by Manchester in Delaware County and attended kindergarten there. But uh, my parents, my mom, her family were uh, farmers and immigrants from Norway. And my father's family were immigrants uh, from the Netherlands and, uh, and really worked in the, um, the newspaper industry. And so for much of my childhood, my parents owned small town newspapers across uh, various parts of Minnesota and Iowa, um, but my roots were mostly in, uh, in, the, in the farming part of the, of the community. So um, I started my first job when I was 12, working as a um, working in a grocery store, stocking shelves and carrying groceries for little old ladies uh, in the small community in, in which we live in, and, and, and just worked on farms uh, all through high school and, and through college. So the the farming part of my history and my, my family tree is really um, a, a core part of the identity I carry with me, which is what, you know, makes one of the many reasons that we're drawn back to Iowa is uh, it just feels, really just feels like home for us. So um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do when I grew up. Uh, I wanted to be a farmer, I wanted to raise turkeys, but we didn't have money for that. Um, I came from a pretty modest background. My, my father finished 10th grade uh, and that's as, as far as he went with education. And he really learned the, the trade, the running offset presses in the newspaper business. And and so um, my mom finished high school after she married my dad uh, and they um, they worked in small town newspapers. But as I worked on on farms that the, the exposure to various career opportunities for me was really quite limited. So I wanted to be a farmer. But we didn't have enough money for that. I couldn't buy equipment. We didn't have land. So um, I guess I would go to college. That's really the only thing to do. And, you know, I was going to go to college to play football and uh, suffered a, a pretty, pretty bad injury and I couldn't play football anymore. And, and I didn't know what to do. Um, I was going through a lot of physical therapy at the time. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll be a physical therapist uh, that's something I guess you can do. (laughs) I did have some exposure to that. And so I chose a, um, a college, small college in Minnesota, one of the only two schools in Minnesota that offered physical therapy as a degree. And, um, having gone to a really tiny rural school, I didn't even really have a lot of exposure to different, different kinds of classes and, and ideas. And so, the first course I took in, in, uh, was a required course, a gen ed course, and it was in developmental psychology. And within a matter of weeks, I changed my major from physical therapy to psychology. And, uh, and that really was one of the you know, several turning points for me that were accidental. And just about every single turning point I have, Matt, is, has been accidental. I've never ended up where I planned on going. But I've always found myself in some pretty cool places. Uh, so I switched my major uh, to psychology and, and uh, a man by the name of Van Pancake was uh, my advisor and took me under his wing and he was an amazing mentor and, and really taught me what it meant to be a mentor and, and uh, helped me with my journey to graduate school and, and, uh, and eventually I ended up here.
1: That, that's great uh what so you had said you you were interested in in uh raising turkeys I'm, I'm just kind of curious on why that that interest what was it about uh turkeys you know because my, my stereotype of midwestern farms are going to be uh may, maybe dairy uh maybe maybe hogs or, you know corn soybeans some wheat maybe or northern Minnesota you might be getting some other smaller grains but what was yeah. it about turkeys that was grabbing your your interest? Yeah, we shared the same level of intellect.
0: <laughs> well, I had the opportunity really to work in all those areas. I milked a lot of cows, threw a lot of hay. My my grandfather and all my uncles on my mom's side farmed along the Red River Valley in northern Minnesota. And they were mo- mostly cash croppers there. But they, um, my grandfather did raise hogs for a while. And And that wasn't something I was interested in pursuing. And I was working on turkey farms in high school. There's a lot of turkey farms up in northern Minnesota. And um, that seemed to me at the time was a a fairly stable uh, uh, income resource. It's something I I knew something about. Um, And so I just saw my pathway to farming. You don't need a whole ton of land to do that um but it just wasn't viable so yeah. but that's why I was thinking about turkeys
1: and then when you you went into psychology you switched your your major can you tell me a little bit more about really what was what piqued your interest when it came to uh psychology
0: yeah um the child development piece to me is is really fascinating and I had never been exposed to any um, psychology curriculum in high school and so this was all really new to me. And you know one of the themes that sort of runs through my life is I, I, I end up taking these really unpredictable pathways because I'm really curious. right? And so that really piqued my curiosity. And the more I learned about it, um, you know, the people I was around were another fellow by the name of Dave Swenson, Um who ran the counseling center at that small college I went to college of St. Scholastic in Duluth, Minnesota were exceptionally interesting people to me at the time. They both had, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Pancake was a Vietnam war veteran and and had post-traumatic stress and um, really found his meaning in life through the child development arena and worked with some of the most amazing scholars in the area of attachment. And so these people were really inspirational to me. I saw them as kind of role models and the content and psychology was really interesting. And it allowed you to pursue a million different things all with
1: within that umbrella of psychology. Thanks. And I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit. I do want to talk about your, your kind of your journey into education a little bit, but with you at the, you know, the Dean at the College of Education, but you also have an MBA, you know, both kind of You know these different parts of your your brain that I I I really find find interesting that I want to pursue. So uh, you uh, I guess yeah. Actually, I'll just back up. What what brought you to then deciding that uh, maybe uh, advanced degrees were something that you were interested, especially with your your background, like you said, you know, your, your parents couldn't tell you about a college experience. Right. And right. so it's not, it wasn't like a social thing that you, you know, you're able to look around and say, Oh, you know, my dad did this, or my, my aunt did this, my mom did. This. So I, I see those things. What, what was it about higher ed that uh, was attractive to you?
0: Yeah. I didn't know anybody that had gone to graduate school. I'd never met anybody to my knowledge that had, you know, obviously my, my, a family practice doctor in our small town did but I didn't think of that that way he's just he was who he was and and so it was really the mentors that helped me see the possibilities there and and uh, so I applied to graduate school and um, at the University of Missouri and was accepted and uh, uh, I've always had a, a sort of a knack for math and that, in combination with my curiosity, I developed some really advanced research skills early on, even as an undergraduate. And so I landed a fantastic graduate assistantship um, at the University of Missouri and ended up working four years on federal funding that looked at the impact of chronic and terminal illness on kids and families. And so uh, that sort of shaped my interest, my uh, career interests at that point, and, and um led me to pursue a career as an academic in academic medicine and in pediatrics. So I did a one-year behavioral science residency at Michigan State University in the Department of Pediatrics there, and uh, and then took my first faculty position in the School of Medicine at the University of North Dakota, and uh, and began conducting research and teaching in medical students and psychiatry family practice residents and uh, pediatrics residents. Uh, and, and then um, we came to Iowa for the first time in 2000, or I'm sorry, 1997 it was. And uh, my wife was a master's level audiologist I'd met at the University of North Dakota. And we worked together in the same university hospital. And she came here to finish her PhD. And I came here uh, as a tenure track faculty member in counseling psychology. And uh, And that's when my professional career really shifted from academic medicine, working in a medical facility and and, and into more of an education framework. Although my work continued in the area of chronic and terminal illness, instead of, you know, focusing on, you know, helping kids during uh, painful medical procedures and, you know, those sorts of things more shifted toward, like, how do we help kids with chronic illness, or even terminal illness have meaningful uh, experiences in schools and how do we reintegrate them back into their school communities? So it shifted a bit that way, but um, my interest in kids in medicine uh, and, and education
1: then sort of merged at that point. Thanks. And um, I'm not sure if you know this or not, but my, my mother-in-law was a, uh, uh, educational psychologist and she was the uh, the school district psychologist for the um, uh school district that Pam grew up in and oh I did not know that yeah so and, and then my my mom was an elementary school teacher with emphasis in early childhood programs and then uh you know more towards the end of her career ran the early childhood program in the school district that I grew up in and uh Ended up as a a principal, you know, at the at the end of her career. So, a uh, a lot of, a lot of kind of social elements in my in my world related to to education. Uh, so you were here for a while, and then you went to Missouri. So you left Iowa City. Uh, did yeah, you, actually, uh, we spent a year
0: in at Western Illinois University, and then I went to Auburn, and I was in the dean's office for three years at Auburn University. Okay, uh, which was a great experience, and then I went back to Mizzou to be the dean, and I was, um, you know, that's where I went to graduate school. So returning to to the you know, the College of Ed at Mizzou as the Dean after having been a graduate student there was uh, a really interesting uh, transition. Um, But it was uh, just a a marvelous opportunity. And, uh, you know, Mizzou's a great university, a lot like Iowa. Columbia is a lot like Iowa City. Um, I have family that lives in Columbia, but really felt, um, strong and deep connection to the institution and, and had six just fantastic years there as the Dean of Education. Although during that six years, there were, you know, various diversions, uh, related to business and some other things as
1: well. Did, is that, did you get your MBA, uh, when you had returned there?
0: Yeah. So, you know, my interest in business, uh, I was thinking and reflecting on this a little bit, really started when I was in high school in Future Farmers of America, or FFA. Uh, I became very active in the ag business activities within FFA and um, won the state Uh, the State Farmer Award. And uh, my capstone project was uh, my grandfather would um, custom combine. And so I would go with him to Texas. And we would, you know, combine for small family farms where they couldn't own the uh, equipment because it was so expensive. And we'd work our way through Texas and Oklahoma, Kansas, back up. And then we'd finish up about the time his crops were ready up in northern Minnesota. And so I really started to understand the business side of agriculture there and and got very active in that, uh, in in FFA. And so I've always had an interest in business. And um, that sort of was re-energized at Mizzou when a friend of mine and I started um, homebrewing beer, and uh, we had a lot of fun with it, talk about uh, creative endeavors, and uh, we got pretty good at it, and and we had some of our friends that would ask us, hey, you know, would you make us, my dad likes this kind of beer, and his, you know, 50th birthday is coming up, would you make him a beer, and um, so, you know, we we couldn't charge for it, obviously, Uh, so we said, you know, maybe we should start a brewery. And so we did. Uh, we uh, developed a business plan and started a microbrewery and, and knowing that it's either going to fail really fast and really hard or within a short period of time, we won't be able to make enough beer. And, and fortunately for us, it, it took off very quickly. Um, but that really got the juices flowing again on the entrepreneurship business side. And so I decided to go back full time and get an MBA. So while I'm the dean at Mizzou, I started three new companies and went back to school full time to get an MBA and what a whirlwind it was and uh, how exciting and rewarding, but, um, you know, it took a toll on the family and uh, my wife told me if I tried that again, the next walk in papers, uh, we're not going to be from (laughs) a diploma, (laughs) Um, but that got me, you know, that. That got me really actively involved in the business community, in the innovation space. Yeah. I uh, was appointed to the board of the Missouri Innovation Center, got involved in some angel investment groups. And, uh, and you know, that's a part of my life I want to keep going um, because I think it, it makes me a better dean, frankly, and it brings value to the university, but it's an awful lot of fun.
1: Yeah, want to uh, ask you a little bit too about, because I know innovation and continuous improvement is uh, important to you, it's like kind of the way you're wired to look at things. Uh, and uh, from my, my perspective, just as background, where I'm coming from, <clears throat> early in my career, I was doing a lot of work in knowledge management. How do organizations learn right, and related to continuous improvement, related to innovate, so we don't get stuck. Applying old problem solving techniques to new problems or contexts. Uh, but in that knowledge management space, uh, and as much as I love universities, one of the things that universities were kind of the poster child for was you probably didn't have more densely populated kind of per capita intelligence, but really bad at c- like collaboration across units, across, coll- yeah. and, and really slowing down. Uh, some of the things we might see in, in an innovation space. From your perspective, how do you help support or overcome some of those friction points uh, for for innovation uh, that might be outside of your your control? Because I bet as dean, at there's some level you can just say this is what the college is doing, but if you were going to collaborate across uh, for really big problems, how what does that look like? Yeah,
0: well, you hit on a really good point, Matt, and that is this is a, one of the frustrations often in higher ed is we have more than enough uh, to get it done, but we can't seem to find a way to make it happen. It's kind of like standing at a parking meter with a $20 bill, right? Yeah. <laughs> you have way more than you need, but you just can't figure out how to make that work. And and that's one of the great frustrations. Um, and you know, the other point I'd make is that um, the least effective way to get anything done is for the dean to say you have to do it. In fact, that's the only way to make sure it never happens, right? (laughs) And so, you know, I've come to understand that, you know, success is really the people involved in helping them understand why it's important. Part of it's a, you know, a change management process, um, but a lot of it also is, is modeling the kinds of. Um, openness and attitudes and behavior that you want to ref- be reflected in your organization. So if I want people to be open to feedback, then I need to be open to feedback. If I want people to be open to new ideas or to take a little bit of risk sometimes, then I have to do that too. And I found that you know, 99% of success in in the role I have now, and, and, and I think all levels of leadership in higher ed is the people. Right. It's the it's really the most significant asset we have at a university are people. Right. Right. And so. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Where I've, you know, where there are a million brilliant ideas that die every day for lack of execution because, you know, it's the people part. So some of the best advice I ever got is attend to the people side. Right. Make the success of other people your primary goal, because then your own success will follow. And so when I think about, you know, when we want to make change in our organization, I can't make it, really. It has to be everybody in the organization working together to make it. And so the focus for me has always been on attending to those relationships. And, you know, it's, it's fear of the unknown. It's a, a lot of times if we want to change, there's kind of an implicit message that, well, maybe the way we've been doing it all along was wrong then and and so people you know resist that and i totally understand that and that's not what it means it you know it, but sometimes those kinds of things really prohibit us from doing some of our most creative and impactful work and the only way to unlock that is to tend to the personal side of that the people side of it
1: thank you yeah i think that's that's one of the things i in in business to you know, kind of old, old school and i'm point, uh, painting with broad strokes but uh, sometimes the desire for efficiency is almost then to treat uh, humans as, a, as like a cog in a machine, uh, rather than like, how do, we, how do we enable their human potential and, and the, the different contexts we need to do that. And I remember early in my consulting career, I got to work with uh, an organizational psychologist. And uh, a lot of things that we, we were going into organizations to help them with things that they couldn't get done. For, for whatever reason. But I remember Jerry telling me, just remember when we go in, and we're bringing new ideas. Uh, at some level, that's the killing of an old idea. And just mm-hmm. to to really be respectful that there, because there are people that might've brought that new idea to life, right? Or it was, that was part of their identity. And so being being careful on how do you, you recognize uh, the good things of the past? How can you uh, leverage those but just still being cautious and respectful of people that uh, and it's always stuck with me that the the framing of, of killing an old idea and these, to that change management though that can yeah. be hard for people that because then then it might a lot of times our work identities and our personal identities are conflated and right so then it feels almost like a personal yeah. attack rather than here's what we're trying to do to keep the organization going. I, I think you're entirely right, and nowhere
0: have I seen that connection between our personal identities and the work that we do
1: greater than in in, in higher education. Right. I'm curious too. On your, you're kind of looking at things with both a psychology and business lens too. Uh, we're seeing a rise in kind of behavioral economics and behavioral science. Or uh, are you looking at applications of, of kind of those frameworks within, in, within the education space as a whole?
0: Yeah, I, th- I think um, you know education is sort of at a crossroads right now. On the higher ed side, there's a lot of skepticism amongst the general public about the value that higher ed brings. And, uh, and I think that's partly on us. We haven't done a very good job of making that connection to how the value of higher ed Uh, helps to improve the lives of people in every corner and you know we especially see this in our rural states Mm -hmm. and and um, you know I go back to these rural communities where I have family and friends and and the connection for them to the work I do is is not um, it's not clear and evident it's not intuitive for us we just assume that everything we do is important and everybody ought to know that it's important. So I think it's really incumbent on us to do a better job of helping every taxpayer in our state, rural or urban or, or suburban, how their tax money brings value to them in, in, their, in their corner of the world. Right. Um, I think that's a critically important thing. And of course, in, in K-12 education, we see similar kinds of influences. We have a rapidly changing economy Um, The social part of education is advancing so much faster than our pedagogy does, and so we have all these really new interesting technologies emerging that bring all kinds of possibilities, Um, but we still use kind of an old industrial model of teaching, so we line students up in chairs and we have them sit there and listen to us talk. Now, there's a lot of um, really interesting and innovative work going on, you know, flipping classrooms and, and um, you know, problem-based learning. And, and I think there's a lot of promise in, in those things, helping education to evolve to better meet the current opportunities and needs of society. Uh, so our kids expect more. Um, it used to be that teachers were valuable because they had the content and the kids needed the content that was true in higher ed too. But you know, you or I, you know, in 15 minutes, we can get all the content we need for a PhD in physics on the internet for free, right? So it's not about the content anymore, right? So what is effective teaching really about now? Well, the one thing that's never changed, and I don't think will ever change is that there's a a core relational or social aspect to the learning process, especially for younger people, that teachers are entirely responsible for. And, you know, the most gifted teachers I've ever known know how to connect with kids, wherever they are, whatever level they are, in a way that opens that child up to learning. Um, That wouldn't be possible without that relationship. So that piece, I don't, you know, whatever the technology is, that core relational aspect of teaching and learning, I think is,
1: is really important and will continue to be. Yeah, that's interesting how thinking about uh, at, at all of these different levels of kind of human relationships that maybe we've, we've, we've talked about, you know, from, from individuals like you as a, as a kid growing up to you as a leader, we're talking about educate teachers, administrators in the ecosystem, and so many things that come down to that, that personal relationship of, you know, and concepts of trust. And does it feel like this, this person has my best interests at heart? Right and you know if you feel like your your teacher is looking out for you, they're concerned about your growth. Right, what that what that does to uh, make make relationships more than something that's just transactional, especially yeah. as as the education ecosystem becomes more complex.
0: You know the most amazing leaders that I've ever known. What's made them so amazing is their ability to to get the best out of others their ability to facilitate success of other people around them, whether it's a teacher or a president or a dean or a pastor or, you know, another community member or even a family member for that matter. And, you know, if we can find ways to help the people around us in our personal and professional roles to reach their full potential, then only then does the organization, the family or others reach its full potential. And, and so, you know, the, the frustrating things for me sometimes in leadership is to see people that think they're smarter than everybody else, that think they have all the answers. And if everybody falls into line, right, um, that uh, and I, I just I've seen that kind of leadership and I've seen it fail hard, really hard. I mean, we saw it at Mizzou, you know, with the student protests, that kind of leadership. Um, sometimes you, you learn more about good leadership from seeing bad leadership. (laughs) Uh, But then I've seen people who could, you know, even look in athletics, the best players in the world are the ones that can get the best out of all their teammates, right? They may not even be the best athlete on the team, Mm -hmm. but they raise the level of the team's performance. And so when I think about, you know, the most amazing teachers I've had, they've found a way through their relationships and inspiration and knowledge and experience to get the best out of the kids in their class. And I think the same is true for leadership at, in, at other levels in business and higher ed as well.
1: Yeah. And on the ed tech side to one, you know, some of the changes you and know, still at the core is still that relationship, but uh, research that I, I've done in the past too. One of the things that I'm finding interesting is the amount of technology that's sitting in the classroom that, that creates almost meta work for teachers. Like, each individual application might do what it says it's supposed to do. It fulfills that individual promise and it might be easy to use, but uh, I was actually I was actually talking to somebody that uh, runs and supports technology for the Columbia, Missouri School District. And he sent me a list of all of the applications they have to support for teachers in the classroom. And I'm thinking that number was 25 or 30 applications. So thinking about all the different logins, all those friction points that teachers have that, Really have little to do with with that. That teach to your point. What is teaching, and how do we we consider and frame that? And I think, uh, and this is this is just my mental model. But the 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 pressures that we put on a teacher to perform uh, based on all the tools they have to use is so different than even maybe what they were trained to do. Thinking about even a teacher that just left teacher training ten or fifteen years ago, the amount of tools that uh, they have to use in their day to day life. I don't know if you have any comments on that, or or feel free to tell me I'm way off too.
0: No, no, I don't think you're way off at all. Um, what's really interesting is the technology has evolved so fast, and and you know, education is complex. The problems we have in our society are complex, and we tend to want to find a silver bullet, right? To find that, and and technology is an easy, you know, find that. Technology that's going to solve all these problems, right. um, and there is no such thing. Now, technology can be an amazing tool to help us, and I think you know one of the uh, the positive things that's come out of this COVID pandemic is what we've seen is the is the is the world's greatest experiment in education, right? And we've seen the world's greatest experience in workforce as well, and it was unplanned. Right. But what we've learned is where technology can do amazing things to help us. But boy, we've also learned that technology is not going to solve all our problems, right? In fact, it, sh- it 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 showed us under a magnifying glass where the problems can get even worse. And when you see, um, you know, kids from uh, lower income backgrounds that don't have access to the same stable, high speed internet to, like, you know, electronic devices. You know, technology becomes, like you said, yet another barrier this child has to overcome as opposed you know, to my kids or your kids who right. you know, have high-speed internet, they have whatever devices they need, and, and it becomes an easy way to get where they want to go. And uh, so it really magnifies the, the problem as opposed to fixing the problem. So I think as long as we see technology as a useful tool to help us and um, a potential opportunity to leverage those other things that are important, like the, the teacher's relationship with the students, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's higher ed or high school or elementary or even early childhood, it's how can the technology help us to leverage that relationship to new and different outcomes as opposed to replacing it? That Yeah,
1: that's interesting. Uh, so, so many different threads here, but thinking about uh, sometimes the difference between a tame problem and a complex problem and and all these different shifts as the system becomes more complicated, kind of using that system dynamics lens is people and man, especially managers are really good at identifying the problem space, but they tend to push the, the solution lever in the wrong direction and it almost makes the problems worse. And what's interesting too, when you talk about leadership, leaders in complex environments their biggest the, the biggest thing they can do is is like provide air cover for people to solve problems and experiment and learn like when when it's a tame problem right that's where hierarchy and top down make sense it's like we we know this this is more of an efficiency issue or more about coordinated action but when we get into these complex systems it's like it's not just one thing that a, a student's fighting against so to speak right it, like you, it's um What about their, their, their mental health? Just, you know, what environment (laughs) did they leave right before they got to school? What, and what does school look like right now? Is it a, is it building? Is it just a computer screen? You have social development, you have learning content, right? There's so many different things. And so it's, yeah, it's just interesting on how we can, can help experiment and push things in the right direction. And to your point about technology for me to it's, I, a believer that it's what does a technology enable uh, rather than what does it drive? Because if you, if you're using it as a driver, one of the guys is that you, it it accelerates your errors, that you, you can screw up faster. And so if you're not sure about what you're, what you want, that can be dangerous. And then just, sorry, one last thing you said too, that was interesting. You talked about outcomes and seeing that in an organizational setting now is like even a healthy framing outcomes over output that what are the outcomes we're really looking for and why and then giving people a little bit more freedom to uh, how they think we might get to that outcome but when it's output driven sometimes that even takes people's agency and creativity out of out of the system so we have a few different different areas there both you as a leader of and because it gets meta when i'm talking to you right because it's you're a leader in education and then we're also talking about education and then we're talking about learning within learning so but uh I don't know any thoughts on all my uh, ham-fisted statements there i don't even know if there was a question
0: yeah i, I think you know one of our biggest problems is we tend to uh, jump to um a solution before we really understand the problem yeah yeah and the sexier the solution the faster we jump to it right like some crazy new technology or um and i think that you know i've i have seen the very best leaders, one of their their most important skills is, is discernment. Like how can they see through all of the data, all of the noise, all the politics, all of the, you know, everything, the competing agendas, and really find the heart of the core issue, right? And, you know, Dick Ferguson is, is one of the most skilled people I've ever met at this, um, which is you know, one of the many reasons he's been so highly successful in everything he's done. Um, Gary Forsey, who was uh, a former um, Sprint CEO, was the University of Missouri system president for a, a period of time. He, he's one of these people that really listened, understood, and the focus was on discernment, right? And so um, you know, I think if, if we can spend a little bit more time understanding the problem, then um, we are more likely to find a, a, a solution that works and not just that happens to be the latest, greatest greatest thing. Another comment I want to make, Matt, is I think you made a really good observation. One of, the, one of the lessons I've learned in leadership, especially as you move up into positions that have more power and authority, is that you know, I have a certain view of, of an outcome and I have a pretty good idea of how I think we ought to get there. And one of the things that I've learned is that there are a lot of ways to get there. And what I've seen effective leaders do is is to um, encourage and empower others to find their way to get to that outcome, right? And so in in a leadership team, I don't tell our associate deans and DEOs and and others to do something a certain way to get to where I want to go. I say, this is where we want to go and let people find their own way to get there, right? They develop their own problem solving their own relationships, they learn along the way. By doing that, then you raise the level of leadership skills and confidence in the whole organization. Sometimes it might take a little longer than it would have otherwise. And sometimes it might might be a much better solution than the one I had in mind. Um, but I learned from that I- as well. And so, you, you know, there's, there's an outcome that we want. And the more you can enlist the creative process, the leadership and and, um, you know, the confidence of the people around you to get there, the more, I think,
1: potential opportunity you raise as an organization. I agree. And I think another benefit, kind of curious from a psychology side, you, but I've, I've believed when I've had more people participating in the change management process, they feel a sense of ownership to making it stick yep. so that it's something that is done with them rather than to them. And so it's it's like an, another way, not only getting their perspective, but it's another way to to get and ensure buy-in is if this was something they're a part of, they have a little bit more skin in the game, and so there might be a little bit more, uh, I don't know, healthy kind of both elbow grease and and pluck that they're they're doing to make sure that the, this yeah. whole thing works. Yeah. One of the other questions I had for you too is, uh, or comment, hearing you talk about solution versus problem. What's really interesting is in the design and innovation space, uh, it's almost a mantra for us, but it's uh, encouraging design teams to fall in love with the problem, not the solution. Usually if you come out with that solution, and like you said, the sexier, probably the faster or better, or faster that people want to run to it. But it's ego-driven, and then people are trying to prove that their solution was right. But when you fall in love with the problem, or have at least a healthy relationship, you're always you're always chipping away at it. And you know, did we understand it? Are we framing it the right way? And then you have multiple solutions you can actually test to see what will work. So I I appreciate you hearing too that jumping to the solution can, can be can be costly and dangerous. Yeah, some of our best innovations
0: in the education space have been when the current uh, solutions um, don't work, right? And and so we keep having to struggle with how do we how do we find a pathway toward improving or solving this problem, whatever the desired outcome is. And it's the value of that struggle in the pathway that gets you to an entirely different place, right? And and then you have some kind of breakthrough. you can you can test but you know one of our biggest problems frankly in in higher education in particular is that is we don't have an appetite for failure right we don't have an appetite for risk and in some ways at a public institution you can't i mean you can't you can't risk failure with taxpayer money right Right. i mean um but really you, you know risk and innovation are soulmates and if you can't if you can't risk and fail you can't innovate right and so in in higher ed that's that's a, a problem we struggle with how do we how do we find ways to fail and do it so that we learn and the, those around us learn and we innovate and we improve and um you know in the private sector that happens often they fail fast and learn from it and try again and fail fast and learn from it and try again you fail a couple times publicly in higher ed and your days as a higher ed administrator are over, right? right. And, and it's understandable. I mean, I I, I get that. But if we want to um, become a, a bigger player in innovation, I think that the relationship between the assets in higher ed, the, the intellectual horsepower we have on our campuses, including the students, by the way, for sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the acts, the network of people we have that are alums are connected to our university in some way. Um, you know, if, if we can connect them with partnerships with folks that are outside the university that, that can risk, mm-hmm. right. Think what's possible through those
1: partnerships, right. right? Um, yeah, no, that's that's great, and the risk it just from some of the private sector stuff too. That I've, is some recent studies, like in uh, Harvard Business Review and Accenture, uh, in McKinsey, um, is that most most enterprises aren't doing innovation well. And uh, coming back to risk aversion, because a lot of times when a company has when or an organization has become successful. It it's they've solved a certain problem and, and it moves from almost that uh, kind of entrepreneur mentality to an operator mentality and the operator there is to keep things running smoothly right? and so you do have these even these cultural differences and even individual appetites about how much how much risk am I willing to take in the organization am I afraid that I might lose my paycheck and so yeah the the notion of risk is huge but to, like you said the also the payoff component, right? It's, and I've been seeing a lot of good work on almost having an innovation portfolio and how can you differentiate from what's kind of protecting your core to just moving out a little bit more feature or market to then revolutionary components. And just as you would manage a, a, an investment portfolio is you, you have principles and guidelines and you can also uh make choices like this. Okay. This is going out the, outside of those bounds or this, this project isn't worth funding anymore. We're seeing that, but uh, yeah, a lot of organizations do struggle with both that aspiration and choice when it comes to uh, how, how kind of far out do we want to go? How, how much innovation, right? Because it's a direct cor- correlation though, between uh, that, that risk. <laughs> and and yeah. so the further out you get the riskier it feels.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, one of my goals has been to slowly but surely build a more entrepreneurial ecosystem in education. And, you know, the reality is there are lots of different ways people are motivated. People tend not to go into education because they're motivated about money. Right. Um, but boy, there's nobody, and I would put medicine in this group too, there is nobody that has chosen this field uh, for more important reasons than people choose education. And, and so people, you know, there's a lot of power to that commitment and drive for impact. So how do we build some calculated risk taking into that, right? Because you already have the commitment, you already have the fire in the belly, you already have people that have found a calling. How do we do that? And so, you know, I encourage people to, to think of new ideas and then say, okay, how do you think, how could we test that idea? Right. How do we try that out a little bit? I'll tell you what, you know, why don't we throw a little bit of money at that? And you guys figure out how to test that idea, yep. whether it's a new academic program, a new way of doing some kind of work or in what, you know, we, we've I've helped people understand is our our core job is to bring value to value to the students, value to the people that hire them, value to the taxpayers through our research. So if we always get back to this question, how can we add value? Right, mm-hmm. so if you have these ideas about how we can add value, let's talk about them and let's let's test them, let's try them. Right, we've we've got some donor money. Right, it's not taxpayer money. Uh, these donors believe in this idea, particularly donors who have a connection to business, um, who want to have an impact in education. They understand that you got to take some risks, and they and they look. I want to invest in this, knowing that sometimes we're going to lose, but boy, there's an opportunity to do something really special. Our college is the only college really who's had steady and significant enrollment growth. And we've been building new programs, changing our programs, really talking to students as prospective customers to understand what they value, what they need, what they want from us, and then finding ways to take our experience and our knowledge and our commitment to impact and turning that into something students want and are willing to pay for. Right. Right. Yep. And so we've been, you know, really fortunate and, and none of that, not one bit of that would be possible if it weren't for our faculty and our staff, you know, buying in and making a personal commitment and in openness to shedding old ideas and trying new ones and and the willingness to fail at something a little bit and learn from it and try it again. And, you know, I've, I've been really encouraged to see the positive impact that that sort of Entrepreneurial approach in our college has had, and I think we could do more of that across the university too.
1: That's great. I, I love I love hearing that, Dan, and thinking about the importance of giving uh, people the skills to to learn and continuously learn. Right. So that that's the at, from the innovation space. That's what I'm seeing too. Is um, by chance, are you familiar with the three box solution? Uh, I, I I'm forgetting. I, Pardon me, I'm forgetting the author's name, but it's from innovation. Like what an organization has to do it three times is how does it remember the great things about its past? Like what got us here? And the, the second box is how do we get ready to pivot, right? Where is it that we might need to go? And then the, the the third box is really what what does the future really look like? And the hard part is you have to work on the future now. If you say you want to do this by 2025, you don't wait till 2025 to, you know, like many organizations might say, we're going to be the leader in blank by this date. Well, the, the work starts today, but that's your future box. And yeah, embracing all those powerful things too. In box one and box two, you have, so I think that's what makes it hard too, is you, there's almost more, more, it gets exciting because there's more levers at your disposal that way, but also you have to manage these multiple things now to, to do that. So I think, yeah, the power of, because that's, and sorry, that second box is what it really is, is I've seen it labeled as relearning. And so how, and I don't know Ed Hess has, has a book from a business perspective called Hyper Learning. And it really, how do we, because some things we were taught don't hold true anymore, right? There's a half-life to science and ideas. And so how do we relearn rather than I learned this once, so I'm good, but how can I learn, investigate, and still be comfortable that- <laughs> I'm not overwhelmed by everything being new. Yeah. I I think,
0: you know, what's central to all of this Matt is curiosity. And, you know, I've, you know, I've, I've never been the smartest person in the room, but my success has always come through two things. One is I've been blessed with an insatiable curiosity about everything, right? If I see a windmill immediately, I'm thinking what's behind that and how does that work? Right. And, you know, it's a, it's a curse too,
1: <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> but but the curiosity and then having grown up on a farm and, and you know, just a work ethic. Mm-hmm. So if you can put curiosity and a work ethic together, anything is possible. Yeah. And so, you know, one of my goals has been, how do you, uh, how do you f- nurture the curiosity and the people in your organization, right? When we talk about problems, let's get curious about what's possible. And then, people have ideas and I might think it's a silly idea or I might think there's no way it's going to work. And, um, but, but the most important thing for me to do is to say, that's a really interesting idea. Why don't we, why don't we try it? Right. And sometimes I'm wrong. It does work. Or sometimes we learn something else that we wouldn't have learned otherwise. But if we can find a way to marry people's like commitment and passion for education um, with their curiosity and then give them the space and resources they need to try new things and i think there's a world of possibility there thanks
1: i love it dan i i know with uh, all my guests i try to dig in a little bit on advice uh so and you had, you had mentioned uh, the power of some uh mentors like you had mentioned uh dr pancake uh and was just curious from your perspective uh because I, I steal from Austin Kleon's book, Steal Like an Artist. He says we're giving advice. We're just talking to our younger self. Uh, so I'm not sure if there's advice you wish you would have had that you would give to folks or um, advice from a mentor that it sticks with you to this day that kind of helps you have a good principle or clarity as you, you look out at the world.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, the best advice I ever got is somebody once told me, if you're not really sure what to do, just go fishing. So that's advice i I try to follow as much as I can actually um, you know uh the one of my early career mentors here at i was name is Jerry Stone, ran the counseling center here and and uh he was one of the key people um to keep this campus together after the gangloo shooting just amazing professional yeah. um, at his retirement party. I was a brand new assistant professor and uh I asked him i said if you could give you know me one piece of advice and he said you know, always put the, the organization, the program, the people around you first, make that your priority and not your own professional advancement. But if you can focus on helping the people around you, be successful, your own success will just happen. Okay. I thought that was, that was really good advice. And, you know, you and I have both seen people that, you know, the first day on the job, they're working for their next job. Right. Right. And, and frankly, that's one of my concerns about, you know, our university is that we get, we we hire leaders from the outside who come here and use the university as an instrument for their own personal advancement. Right. And, um, and that's, that can be very damaging. I mean, we've seen, we've seen examples of that even recently, and they tend to be high profile failures. Saw it at Mizzou too, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that's really good advice. That if you can work really hard to make the people around you as successful as possible, your own success will naturally follow. So I think that's I think that's um, that's really good advice. And um, you know, one other piece of advice I got from a, a, a university president named Dennis Holtschneider, Schneider. Um, you know, I was fortunate enough to uh, attend a a program at Harvard on higher ed leadership, and we were talking about crises. And and the advice that he had is that, you know, when you're in the heart of a crisis, the, the best thing to do is to set aside everything and go back to those three to five core values that you have. And let those core values drive your path forward. They may not be popular, they may get you fired. Um, but if you go back to those core values at a time of crisis, and, you know, um, I've had a few crises as a leader, and I've done just that. And in every instance, it's really served me and the institutional institution well. So I think that's another really good piece of advice.
1: Yeah, that's great. Uh, thanks, Dan. Is there anything we didn't cover today that you thought uh, when you were joining me on the podcast? You know, just one of the
0: things that I, I wanted to touch on briefly is, you know, my wife and I and our family, uh, we've had a lot of opportunities. Uh, we've been really blessed that way. And and um, the opportunity to come back to Iowa City was just, it was too great for us. And, you know, in a lot of ways, um, you know, I was uh, being heavily recruited for some president's positions, was a finalist at some places and, and and we decided to come back here for what was essentially a lateral move to be the dean here. And, and it was because of the community at the at the university, but it was also the the larger community. And and you know, there are very few places where you can do world-class work and have a huge impact and have the quality of life and access to the arts and the culture and you know, I walk down the street and I can meet five people in a day from five different parts of the world, right on the Ped Mall in Iowa City. Right, and and to and to be able to come back and raise our family here, I mean, there's something really special about our community and our university that drew us back. And um, I know that that you know people in ICAD and the university and. Other organizations, our arts and, and culture organizations are working hard to figure out how we leverage that to bring people here. A great place to start a business, the access to people and even capital here. And and this is a really special place um, for a lot of reasons. And it's been a lot of fun listening to some of your other guests yeah. on the Iowa Idea podcast talk about uh, how special this place is for them. So I just wanted to make sure to get that in what what a special place our university is and what our community is for us and our family and what a privilege it is to be back here in this community.
1: I really appreciate that Dan and just from a personal perspective too I feel because this is my second stint in Iowa City Uh, did my undergrad here and then uh, when when Pam uh, had a job opportunity It just, I never thought I'd be able to be back in Iowa city. And so it was just, it was just spectacular to be able to, to get back here. And, and I just echo what, what you're saying about the, the community, the perspectives that are, that can be found here are great. So Dan, it was an honor having you here on the podcast. Thank you so much for sharing your time and insights and, uh, We'll have to we'll have to go uh, grab a beer sometime and explore a little bit more too. About we we didn't dig too much into the brewing side, but we'll uh, we'll have to save that for later.
0: My pleasure, Matt. It's been a, a joy visiting with you, and thanks for all the work you do on this podcast. Thanks.